you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We took uh, a few weeks during the Advent to talk about the birth of Christ, but now we're going to resume our normal, our normal rhythm, uh, preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians at this time. We'll be finishing up chapter 4, God willing, this morning. Just to kind of recap where we are in this book, remember Paul has been... Um, he's been assailed by this church. Uh, he's been persecuted. He's been uh, ridiculed, slandered. They said he wasn't a good preacher. We know this from later in this letter. They, had, they criticized him for not being maybe eloquent like the, the people who were maybe there preaching before Paul or after him. And he responds in a way that they did not expect, I think. He says that his ministry is really gospel ministry. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's nothing. He's a jar of clay. If you read through the uh, Table Talk magazine in December, you know one of the last articles was about preaching. Um, and I also uh, read an article where Sinclair Ferguson noticed or noted that in the history of the church, there was a time when people came to hear the Word of God preached because they actually thought they would hear from God. They came because they, they, they thought that the preached Word would, uh, was the means by which God would, would save people's souls and it would comfort the saints of God. So they would come to hear the preached Word because they wanted to hear from Christ Himself. And only a cursory study of Reformed writing shows that this is what they all thought. The Reformation brought, a, brought about a, a huge change in the view of the Christian worship and especially in preaching. We know that from our Shorter Catechism 89. The preaching of the Word is an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. The preaching of the Word builds them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation but all through history, and probably in the Corinthian church as well, the view of worship, the view of preaching was very much different. It was a very self-serving and maybe limited view of what, what preaching should be. And there are many churches, I'm sure, all across the land where you, you come and you think that worship is the singing. We, we worship for about 30 minutes. And hopefully the band is really on step this week. And then the, the, the minister, the preacher gets up and maybe he has a, a, a quick word for us. Something that might encourage us. Maybe he'll have something to say that's relevant for me. And of course, this, this kind of very encouraging way of, of thinking about preaching, it works in the sense that people come. I mean, look at Joel Olstein. That church is is exploding through the stadium. His word is all a word of, of fluff and encouragement. But this isn't true worship. This isn't the essence of preaching. We believe at Meadow Creek, and I'm sure you would agree, that the entire service is worship. From the call to worship until the benediction, we are in worship to the Holy God. Our offering is worship. Our prayers are worship. Our singing is worship. The preaching of God is worship. 
and the Reformers and for their generation, and for hundreds of years after the Reformation, the sermon was the center of the worship. The preaching was powerful. And why is that? Was it because the preacher is eloquent or because he's funny or because he's really intelligent and he just studies so hard? No, that's what Paul is saying in chapter 4. We are a jar of clay. The minister is honored to be able to, to distribute the wealth of the gospel, the treasure. But the minister is nothing. And I, of all people, know my weakness and my frailty and my inadequacy to do the task that God has given me. I know this is a long introduction, but I just I was struck by this as I considered Paul's message and as I reviewed all the things that Paul had said before about his own ministry. Made me think too, when you have a really serious issue in life, you're going through something that is incredibly hard. The first thing that comes to your mind is what? Maybe I'll pray. And if it's really, really serious, I need, I need counseling. Like I need, I need counseling. I need to talk to a Christian counselor. And we, we somehow think that this is where our needs are most deeply met. And I'm not against counseling. I mean, I, I would love to counsel any one of you and pray with you and give you as much biblical and, and godly guidance as I possibly can. I, I'm all for counseling. So I'm not denigrating counseling. But what I'm doing is showing how far we have left a proper view of preaching. Because there was a time when people had problems in life So they went to hear the Word of God preached because that's where they would hear Christ speaking to them, ministering to their souls, the one who knows everything about you, speaking directly to you. So let me challenge you with how you think of the preached Word. That the Holy Spirit might build you up in holiness and comfort, that He would speak to your very soul what you need, And most of that is just giving you a proper view of God, who God is. Because in that, your soul is changed. You are encouraged. So today I pray that you hear Christ speaking from this pulpit through His Word. Not this man, this broken, fragile, weak, timid, anxious man. But the Holy Spirit speaking through this this, this crooked stick and striking straight to your soul. Like Paul, I can say that I'm simply a jar of clay, worthless in the sight of man, but offering a priceless treasure to each and every one of you. With that long introduction, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 7. This is God's holy inspired word. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Please be seated. May God truly add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, holy be thy name. We approach your word with such dirty hands, such filthy minds, and yet your word is so clean and right and true. We pray that you would enable us to hear the word that you speak from these scriptures today. That you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned the, the thing I would love us to, to really grasp from this particular passage is the eternal focus that is offered to each one of us in Jesus Christ. Paul mentions, and we'll focus on verses 16 through 18, why he doesn't lose heart in the face of all the difficulties that he sees every day as a minister of the gospel. He says he doesn't lose heart in verse 16. That word so is also sometimes therefore. So we we need to understand what Paul's saying. He's saying therefore, based on everything that I've said before, I don't lose heart based on the, the fact that I'm called to ministry by God himself, that all of my ministry is in the hand of God. I'm not going to lose heart. Based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that I have in that, I'm not going to lose heart based on the fact that I've been grafted into his kingdom and I also will be raised, I will not lose heart. And because, finally, all of our present sufferings are used by God to advance his kingdom, I'm not going to lose heart. So he's saying he's not. what, What would it look like to lose heart? I think that's a fair question. What does that mean to lose heart? Well, for a Christian... For someone who who claims Christ, to lose heart would be to despair, to despair, uh, to lose hope, to, to deny God in a sense. And that you don't think he's going to answer you. You don't think he matters in this situation. It's to live as if the problems that you face today are, are unnoticed by God or, or insurmountable in, in the sight of God. That there's nothing that God offers to you. And in that sense, you would lose heart. To live in despair, as Marilla and Anne of Green Gables said, to live in despair is to turn your back on God. That's why Jesus told the parable in Luke chapter 18 about the persistent widow. And Luke tells us the purpose of that parable. It's very special. 
that he tells us exactly why the parable was written or was was spoken. And he says in verse one, it was it was told Jesus spoke this parable, quote, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, God encourages us not to lose heart. What do we do? We pray. That's what we do. When you don't feel like praying, you feel like it's overwhelming, you pray. You don't lose heart. If you don't pray, then you're acting as if God cannot change things. But you're also doing something else. You're you're failing to see the eternal purpose of the event, of the thing in your life. In Ephesians 3, Paul says much the same. In verse 13, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So he's telling the Ephesian church not to despair or lose heart at his sufferings. Why? Because there's an eternal purpose that they need to see. It's for their glory. Meaning God will use that suffering in Paul's life for the good of the church. It's for their eternal good. And you might think because Paul mentions his difficulties and his suffering that it was just really not that big a deal in his life. It wasn't too difficult. And this is not right. We'll see later in 2 Corinthians. His suffering, his persecution was overwhelming to a scale that you and I will never probably ever, ever face. Shipwrecks and beatings and uh, being whipped with lashes and being imprisoned and starving and being thirsty. Over and over and over again, Paul is subjected to suffering. So much so in chapter 1, he says he despaired of life itself. But what? But he would always turn his despair into prayer. He didn't dwell in despair. That temptation, he turned into prayer as an example for us. And this really is how you will not lose heart. It's Paul's philosophy in life, really. Look to Jesus. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Just look to Jesus. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, of course, we're told that this is the way we should live. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He brought you into this family, saints, and He will continue with you until the end. He's the author of your faith and the perfecter. How do we know that He will do this? Because for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and He scorned its shame and He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He finished the race and you also will finish the race as you throw off your sin that so easily entangles and you run with perseverance. Look to Jesus. This is how you keep from losing heart. He expounds on this theme later in verse 16 of this chapter. He explains that although our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So what is this outer inner man language he's using? Is it just the body is our outer man and our soul is the inner man? Well, certainly that's part of it. But there's more to the outer man than just the physical body. And there's more to the inner man than just a soul. We know this by looking at Romans chapter 7, where Paul discusses the internal struggles he has in his inner man, in his soul. He says, so I find this to be the law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So our outer man really is all that has fallen in us. And Hodge and Calvin and many others would say that our inner man is that that part of us that grasps the eternal by the Holy Spirit. Our outer man is beset with weakness and brokenness and sin. And our inner man is that part of us that loves Christ. The redeemed part of our souls. The part of us that is focused on godly and eternal things. Of course, we're all redeemed. All of us. Body and soul. But our inner man is being renewed day by day. The Holy Spirit reminds us of who God is in our inner man. And this is a beautiful truth for God's people. We feel like we're constantly wasting away. And physically, of course, we are. We're all getting older every day, every year. And eventually, we will all die. Many of you will be buried right out there where I hope to be buried. We're all going to die, all of us. Our outer man, certainly. Our body is wasting away. But inwardly, by the Spirit of Christ, we're being nourished. We're being renewed. I was speaking to Melody this week about the the Israelites wandering the wilderness. You remember they followed the cloud by day and the fire by night. And every day, the manna was distributed from heaven by God. And they were told to go get as much as they could eat. Everyone, gather it up. He didn't give them enough food for more than one day, except the day before the Sabbath. They were told to just get what they wanted that day. Every day God renewed them. Every day they had to rely on God for everything. And this is a a good reminder for us that every day, every day we need the Word of God, the bread of life. We need to commune with our Father in heaven. If you're not thriving, you can't blame God. You have the Word. It's right here. You can come to Him in prayer because of Christ. He hears your prayers. You need to commune with God. If you're not eating your daily bread, you're going to starve. And it's in this process that we're renewed. Even in the midst of suffering and hardship, we're renewed. Our outer man may be struggling and suffering, but we're being renewed. In Christ, we're strengthened. In Ephesians 3, Paul elaborates on this. He says, He bows his knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And later he says to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. So when we're renewed, what is that doing? We're being strengthened in our inner being to know Jesus. His Spirit strengthens us to know the man from Nazareth. I'm always careful, I hope, not to just talk about Jesus. 
to, to preach about Jesus, but rather to preach Jesus himself to you. Do you know the man? If you don't know Jesus, then you're in danger of being one of those whom Christ says at the very end, I never knew you. Depart from me. No amount of knowledge about Jesus does you any good. You need to know the man. You need to know Jesus. The one who died for you. The one who rose and is waiting for you at the Father's hand. Do you know him? Do you know the love? This is what Paul says, that we would be strengthened to know the love of Christ. That Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. Well, how do you know him? You read about him. You pray to him. And in doing so, you're strengthened with power in your inner being. If you don't know Jesus like that, if you don't know him as a person, if you don't know him as a a savior, as a king, as a master, as a friend, pray that the Holy Spirit enables you to, to grab a hold of him to hold on to his feet as the women did at, at the garden of when they saw him coming from the tomb and they, they grabbed him and they were worshiping him. Pray that you can know him in, in the same way that Mary Magdalene knew him when he, he lifted her up and he said, go and sin no more. You need to know him. This often is the reason for a trial and hardship. It's one of the things that we see in 2 Corinthians as well. Have you ever been through a hard, difficult time and you realize that there was no one left but Jesus? I've seen this many times in my life. My wife can't help me. My family cannot help me. The elders, they cannot help me. My friends cannot help me. There's no one who understands What is going on here? And all I'm left with is Jesus. This is why these things happen. is so that we will come to the point where there's no one left that you rely on for your happiness, your peace, your health, your joy, but Jesus. He is the only end of everything. And when you get to this point, you'll find that you're all alone. But it's a sweet aloneness because you're with Jesus. It's like the old poem where the the man is looking back through his life and it's two footprints in the sand. And at the most difficult parts of his life, he sees that it goes into one footprint, one set of footprints. And he says to the Lord later, why did you leave me? In the most difficult times of my life, why? Why? Did you leave me? And he says, I didn't leave you. I was carrying you. In these difficulties that you may face in life someday, you want to rest only on Jesus, to trust only in Jesus. When Paul despaired, he said the purpose of his despairing in chapter 1 was to make him fully rely on God. That's the purpose for suffering in your life as well. Your outer man is wasting away, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. And it's renewed to the effect that you know Jesus and you trust him.
You have a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. So in this way, suffering and your suffering is transforming. As we read in chapter 3, we're being transformed from the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're changing. We're not static. And he goes on to say in verse 17 that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's more than we're just being sanctified. As we love Jesus and serve Jesus and and walk with Jesus, this is also preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, an eternal inheritance. So as you walk through this new year in 2023, I want you to, to always remember that whenever there's a problem in life, you have a very clear choice to make. Every one of you. Whether it's a big thing, a catastrophic tragedy, death of a loved one, or just a small daily struggle. You have a choice. Am I going to serve Jesus and view this through the lens of Him and His grace? Or am I going to be selfish and just wallow in despair in myself? Paul was beset on every side. He was pursued by his enemies in the culture, in the civil government, the Romans, in the church. He was pursued in every way. And yet he used all of these sufferings as a trigger to holiness and prayer. He didn't walk away from God in times of trial. He walked toward God. And he had his eyes fixed on Jesus to the effect that everything that happened to him was seen as a light affliction. And you know his afflictions weren't light. As a momentary affliction. In Ecclesiastes we read that eternity is in the heart of man. That's all men. Everybody knows that there is an eternity. Everybody. Atheists know it deep down. They don't like it, but they know it. We're all eternal beings. And do you know everyone is going to live forever? You're either going to live forever in heaven or you're going to live forever in hell, although hell's probably not really qualified as life. But we are all eternal beings in the sense that we're going to live forever, either in horrible suffering or in perfect peace with our Savior. For Christ followers, we know that this eternity is a, is a wonderful hope for us. It gives us the attitude of Paul that this is a light and momentary affliction. We're wandering through the wilderness, but someday we will cross the Jordan into the promised land. And because eternity is so big, it makes our suffering so short when we see it properly. Our lives compared to eternity, are but a breath. This is all through the Scriptures. Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days like a passing shadow. Job 7, in the middle of great affliction, said, remember that my life is but a breath. James chapter 4, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We all need to understand eternity properly to, to really cope with life the way Paul does. And for Christians, this is a wonderful perspective. He says in verse 18, we don't look at things that are unseen to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. 
The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is placing into contrast really what all of us know, that for your friends and family that don't have faith in Christ, life is an uncertain place and it's a little terrifying. Well, I'm sick. Well, I better find a good doctor because that's my only hope. My relationships are broken. My family's disintegrating. We better find a good psychologist, a good counselor. That's our only hope. My finances are crumbling all around me. You better work hard and be diligent. That's your only hope. I need happiness. I'm not happy and content. You better pursue pleasure and entertainment and wealth with all of your might. That's your only hope. And of course, for such people, suffering is to be despised. It serves no purpose. Death, of course, is the worst of all because then it's all over. But for sons and daughters of God, everything is meaningful. Everything. Every event has eternal purpose. If you believe that God is eternal and He's written every one of your days down in His book to the order of numbering the hairs on your head, then there's nothing that happens that is not part of His grand scheme, His his wonderful masterpiece of eternal redemption. So it's not our hope just to make it through this this difficult journey, this wilderness. It's not our hope just to kind of be able to, to walk. No. Our hope is to begin to live in the reality of eternity right now. It was said of Puritan Richard Sibbs that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? But it's not just because he's this wonderful holy man. This is all of our inheritance, that we can live that way. It's not just for special people. Super, there are no super holy special people who God is just gifted with holiness or gifted with a love for prayer or gifted with a pursuing of, of eternal things. No. Don't you ever think that when you read a Puritan or you read about some modern Holy, you know he's a holy man. You know he he has devoted his life to God. Don't ever think that, oh, well, God just gifted him with this lovely pursuit. It's not true. It's not easy for any of us. If you don't have a desire to serve God right now, it's not on God. It's on you. You're not godly because you do not pursue Jesus Christ. You don't really want to know him. You don't really want to see him. Or you would be pursuing Him. It's that simple. You prefer the happiness that this world offers rather than the eternal joys that Paul is speaking of. You have your mind set on earthly and transient things as if they're going to give you some form of happiness and yet it's all passing away. It will all perish in the dust. All of it. The only thing that will last is what is around Jesus. Let me conclude with this. The so what, the, the, the application. When you see life from Paul's perspective, from the Christian perspective, we see that what matters most is eternity with Jesus. Heaven without Jesus is, like one of my professors said, it's like a two-year-old in Disneyland. You don't know what is going on. It means nothing. 
In all of life, good and bad, we are told to look to the things that are unseen. Our troubles in light of eternity truly are light and momentary. And Paul's not saying this lightly. He's not discounting suffering. He suffered greatly. But in light of eternity, we see that there is a great inheritance that is there for us. And we need to remember that eternity will be with Jesus. For some of you, thinking of eternity with Jesus really is not inspiring. What's really inspiring is, is the football game next week. or Those are the things we're excited about. Oh, the trip I'm going to take in the summer. Or, oh, this is when my family are coming. Or, but eternity with Jesus? Oh, Lord, hold off on that second coming thing. Just, just wait. I've got a few things I need to, to work out. A few things I need to enjoy on this earth first. What a horrible, horrible thought. We don't really know God. We don't really know Jesus. We don't value Him as we should. Or that would be the grandest thought we could ever have. The most precious thing we could ever desire would be to have an eternity with Jesus. I know some of you are wondering if I'm really going to get a tattoo this year. The one I was talking about was the DNR right on my chest. Do not resuscitate. So when they rip open the shirt there, they're aware that I don't want to come back. Let me go. I'm not getting a tattoo, by the way. but I want to be with my Lord. If you do not want the pearl of great price, if you're content with the worthless, plasticky, fading things of this world, this, the shiny screens that you put in front, if that's where your focus is, heaven help you. If you do not yearn for the marriage supper of the Lamb, you're, well, you're, just, you're content with just normal, everyday wallowing in the muck with the swine of this world, heaven help you. I say to everyone who's listening, young or old, today is the day that you should repent of sin and turn to Jesus. He's our only hope. He is the only way to navigate this wilderness journey. He's the way. When you're confused and distressed and don't know what to do, He's the only truth. Jesus Christ, when you think of, of all that your life has and Maybe you think, well, my life is almost over. There's nothing left for me. It's not true. You have an eternity left with Christ. He is the life. Turn your hearts to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to close before the Lord's Supper by just reading this prayer. I found it to be very sweet. Just listen to these words. O Lord, in prayer I launch far out into the eternal world, and on that broad ocean my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality. Time with its amusements and cruel disappointments never appears so inconsiderate as then. In prayer I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after thee with intensity, 
and long with vehement thirst to live in Thee. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on my way to New Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares and fears and anxieties disappear and are of as little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exults with lively thoughts at what you are doing for your church, and I long that you should get yourself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I place all my concerns into your hands. In prayer, I intercede for friends and ministers and sinners as with great freedom and ardent hope as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. Help me to be all prayer and never to cease praying. And with that, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called each and every one of us to this place this morning to hear your word. We pray that we would be changed, that you would be glorified, that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which you have ordained it. We pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen.